<laughs> not that this would be mean anything to you, but one of the uh, star pitchers from the Mets is at the mall, so my daughter was was I hate texting football. me. I know, but my daughter was texting me to tell me that he's there. I, I wouldn't be surprised at all because she texted me and my son. I wouldn't be surprised at all to hear his car peeling out and him heading to the mall. <laughs> anyway, we should jump right in because we're, we're, we are under a time constraint. Yes. My son is running up here right now. I, I told you. Dad, the goats at the mall. I, I heard. The goats at the mall. Let's go to the mall. Go ahead. No, I'm, 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 I'm in the middle. I'm on Skype here. I'm doing something very, very important. It's- Hi, Scott. <laughs> hey, how's it going, man? The goats at the mall and he doesn't want to go. The what's at the mall? It's it's, it's Jacob DeGrom is the guy's name. He calls him DeGoat because goat would be greatest of all time. Ah, gotcha. Okay. Mall. So go to the mall. I don't want to drive to the mall. Why, drive, why can't I? Why, we can just use your gas. <laughs> I, what do you think is in your car? Who put that gas in? <laughs> yeah, you did. Sure. With my money. Back to the bin. Logan's been playing uh, Lego Avengers, and he was playing a level the other day that took place in Manhattan. Is he getting psyched? Oh, yeah. he's, He's totally down for this. But one of the cool things about that game is... You know, all the other characters, like when you're just like walking down the street, there's all kinds of side conversations and you can hear other people talking and everything. And some woman said something in a very thick um, accent. Now, to me, it sounded like a like more New Jersey than anything else. But anyway, she said something and he just turned to me and he goes, oh, do they all sound like that up there? <laughs> and I said, oh, you just wait till we're there. <laughs> Well, thankfully, I have an accent that's unidentifiable. Yeah, right. <laughs> what is this lately? Everybody's saying I sound like Ray Romano. I've always thought you sounded like Ray Romano. I've never thought I sounded like Ray Romano. Yeah, you do. I, I thought I was. I thought I was pigeonholed as Dan DiDio. Now I'm Ray Romano. <laughs> Dan DiDio, Ray Romano. What's the difference, really? I don't know. I, I never thought I sounded like Ray Romano. I, I understand. I have a you have a deeper voice than Ray Romano. Ray you don't Romano's have that more like this. Yeah, he he's got you know that that very whiny nasally kind of thing, which is why but, I don't want to sound like him. Right? No, I understand. But I, I think to anybody that that doesn't necessarily know you, or maybe they're not you know used to your voice or whatever, you might you might sound more like that. But uh, you know, I don't I don't think so. I mean, I see where where on the surface of it, somebody could think that, but like I say, you know, you get to know you and you realize, no, it's they're very different. It's it's, I I think it's just the superficial, you know, it's it's the accent. Oh, here he comes again. I'm gonna go meet the goat. All right, where what store is he in? He's by Dick's. Okay, <laughs> Dick's Sporting Goods, that is. Uh, all right, just be careful, drive safe. All right. I heard somewhere that Cole staples dicks, but you know, <laughs> watch out for you know. Don't go to Cole's. Uh, uh, so yeah, now I'm totally lost my train of thought here. <laughs> You're welcome. So I got I have the address for that comic store in Manhattan that's like walking distance from the Empire State Building that was rated as one of the top ten comic stores in the country. 
Which one is this? I've never been there. I think it's called JHO or something like that. Mm. They just had a recent thing where they did the top 10 comic stores, and, and this was one of them. I've never been there. I have no idea what, what we should anticipate, but I figure if we're going to be in the city going to the Empire State Building anyway, right. so might as well hit the comic store while we're there. Right. And then we should also probably hit Midtown Comics, because that's probably the most famous comic store. And uh, then we'll see what else we do. I'm Out down for whatever, by. dude. I know. I know you're 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 very easy as long as as long as you get to see your Unisphere, you're a happy man. That's it. Yep. As long as I get to do that, you know, any anything else that anybody else wants to do in the in the party is is good with me. I'm I'm a happy camper at that point. But you know, I like I said before, I'm just I'm looking forward to just seeing my brothers again and and hanging out. You know what I mean? I have this image in my mind at some point of saying, "Hey, where's Scott?" And then we look over, and you're actually like climbing the Unisphere. Taking pieces off it and putting them in my pocket and doing that shifty eyed like, did anybody see that? <laughs> Nobody saw that, right? Yeah, this time around, I'll see if I can keep you from drinking water from the fountain. <laughs> well, you know, this time I actually know where the correct fountain is. See, this is the thing, and I don't know that I've admitted this publicly or not, but part of that recording is in error where I'm like, okay, so we're standing where the you know where the carousel of progress was, and here's the fountain. I no, I was wrong. It's actually, um, do you remember where the I, I forget what it's called, but that statue of the guy where he's kind of like reaching for the... St- I think it's called like the the rocket thrower or something. I forget what it's called. But anyway, you know, you know where I'm talking about? It's not. I'm not certain. So like you're standing at the Unisphere and you're looking like way down the walkway. Like I think there's water down at the end of it. Like past those okay, yeah, murals I think I think, yeah. that are on the ground and all yes, that. Yes. And there's that statue down there of the guy you know, kind of reaching up, you know, like he's throwing something or reaching for something. It's down there. So like down all the way at the end where that guy is off to the right, there's a field off to the right that has some fountains and stuff. That's the field where, um, the carousel of progress was. And then to the left of him and down a ways is where small world was. So we were close, but I was not exactly where, where the thing actually was. So, I have a whole new drinking fountain to uh, to take a sip of <laughs> next time we go there. So we we'll have another photo op. <laughs> but yeah, I'm I'm really really jazzed to go, and uh, I have you know a whole new set of props and souvenirs I want to bring with me and totally nerd out. So yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to it. I think it'll be fun. Yeah, it's gonna be awesome. It was awesome last year. It's gonna be awesome again. It will. It will. All right, so but, uh, if anybody's listening and you haven't figured it out, this is Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spataro. That's Scott Gardner. Hello. Dr. Bill Robinson had planned to be with us today, but don't be too harsh on him. The reason he's not with us is because he's at work. So, yeah, he probably could have been here, but it might have been at the cost of him and his family getting thrown out into the street. So <laughs> I, think, I think we'll give him a little bit of a pass on that one. But don't let I- it happen again. <laughs> I have, a, I have enough time, uh, enough of a hard time getting through the streets without Bill and his family being there too. So you know, you never know. You you could be sitting in the household and your bell rings and it's it's <laughs> it's, it's the Robinson family. They got nowhere else to go. And... <laughs> I got nowhere else to go. I got nowhere else to go. I got nothing else. <laughs>
and that's we it. managed to work it into every episode. I love it. I love it. Uh, what was the new one that he worked in? There was the new quote. Oh, the new thing is the uh, you are you are you are failing. <laughs> you are failing. Try to work that in every once in a while. Uh, Excuse me. And there we go. All right, so today, now were we accused of being too pro Marvel or too pro DC? I, you know, now that you bring that up, I can't remember that we were accused of being too much one way or the other. And now for the life of me, I can't remember which one we were accused of of being. I'm not Uh sure, but I think we were accused of being too pro DC. Yeah. That you you and Bill basically, you know, were, uh, you know, your introduction into comics was more in the DC side of the ledger. Whereas right. mine was more on the Marvel side of the ledger, and I remember pointing that out uh, and saying, you know, no, I'm, you know, if anything, I'm a Marvel zombie. Well, uh, one way or the other, you know, with 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 no, you know, absolutely no offense to whoever it was that accused us, and I'm not sure if they meant it tongue in cheek or if they were really serious about it, but and I'm not again, even sure you know, accused is the right word, right? But you know, uh, again, no offense meant to to whoever that was that brought that up. I, I don't think that that's really a thing because. Here's the thing. I've been listening back to back to the bins lately. I, I actually started way back at episode one, and uh, and I've been listening and you know just kind of bringing myself back up to speed on early episodes and what did we talk about and what issues did we cover and who have we had on the show in the past and things like that. And right out of the shoot, the show's been pretty balanced. And every time I I was listening and think, ooh, you know, we've it's been very Marvel centric, and then all of a sudden we'd have a string of DCs, and then eventually we did kind of fall into the thing where it was extremely balanced, where it was you know a, a Marvel and a DC pretty much every episode there for for a time. So you know, I mean, I'm sure if you sat down and and graphed the whole thing out, that maybe it's slightly higher one or the other. But overall, I'm I you know I think an attempt has been made to keep it you know fairly balanced between the two but you know that said i mean i i make no bones about the fact that while i was you know born and raised so to speak a, a dc boy dc just hadn't been doing it for me in in recent in recent times and my focus my back issue focus my reading focus lately for comics has been primarily marvel so you know, I'm I'm hoping that doesn't bother anybody, but you know that that's just the truth of it. I haven't really, you know, my interest in in DC at the moment has has waned greatly, and I'm really enjoying diving into some Marvel that I've actually never read before or or had you know very little knowledge of before. So, I don't know that that's one thing that uh, I think will be interesting when we dive into our issues that we're discussing tonight is the difference between those two companies when it comes to the back issues because you know the the fun thing with this Marvel project that I've been on is I basically went back to the beginning of Marvel which yeah I know you can trace it all the way back to you know the 30s arguably but still I mean for most people I think most people accept the fact that the Marvel universe primarily started in 61 with the Fantastic 4 and DC I mean goes all the way back to 1935 1961 by the way What did I say I think you said 64 did I say 64? I meant to oh, say Unless I made a mistake, in which case I'll just edit this out. Oh, that's if right. I'm I mean, right, I'll leave it in. <laughs> I, I meant to say 61, but I may have said 64. I've had that year on the brain a lot lately. Um, but, you know, anyway, you know, you go back. Well, I, 
you know, I'll save part of this for when we, we really get into what we're discussing. But essentially, one of the big things I took away from these two issues is really the vast differences between the two companies at the same time. That while while Marvel was doing its thing and really, you know, kind of, I want don't want to say it, it had hit, hit its stride yet at the same time that this was on the stands, but they were well on their way. They were establishing their universe and doing a, a particular kind of comic that eventually became legendary and basically, you know, uh, created the, the, the pillars on which their universe stood. And this is what DC was doing. <laughs> you know? and so that that's going to be, to me, that's kind of the angle that I'm bringing to this particular discussion is, you know, just the difference in, in feel and, and everything else between the two at the, at the exact same time. But we'll yeah, talk I, about that. I, as yeah, we we'll get into it further. And I agree with you kind of that there, there is a difference there, but I think there is still a foundation here for DC. It's just not as firm. Right. So we'll we'll talk a little bit more about that. It's just on on the point again, just a Marvel DC uh, bias point. Uh, while while I you know proudly proclaim I'm I'm a Marvel guy, I've always enjoyed DC books, and I know vice versa is true for you and Bill. Right. Uh, we've never been the three of us. You know, we've never been the type where it's you know you you either either you root for the company that I'm rooting for or you're against us. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we're just, you know, we like comic books and, right. you know, when, when DC puts out something really good, I'm psyched and I read it. When Marvel puts out something really good, you guys are psyched and you read it. There's nothing, there's nothing that says that our loyalty to one company means that we don't have loyalty to the other. Right. Oh, so, I've, I've never been, you know, even, even, you know, as I've often said, you know, I, I've often proclaimed myself a DC boy and, and all that, uh, you know, even, to some of the earliest episodes of this show, you know, when we'd have different guests on and kind of introduce ourselves and, and, you know, give a brief synopsis of our history. I always, almost invariably I've identified myself as a DC boy and, you know, but at the same rate, I, I hope that that was never taken as, you know, DC only because I've never subscribed to the idea that you have to be one or the other any more than I ever subscribed to the nonsense that, you can only be a Star Trek or a Star Wars fan that there's no crossover, you know? Yeah, it is. It's, it's ridiculous. And that was one of those things that I felt like two true freaks proper was kind of built on when, when Chris and I started doing, you know, two true freaks was we made it very plain that, you know, we used to call it crossing the streams, which is, you know, from a completely different franchise, you know, completely different movie. But we were very proud of that fact that, you know, we often would would flow back and forth between Star Trek and Star Wars, you know, whether it was jokes or comments or or whatever. And I don't subscribe to that war any more than I do the war between Marvel and DC fans. I don't get it myself. No, I, like, I why can't you be part of both? You know, I think when, you know, trying to think about it a little bit, I think the distinction with us is that since I grew up more on Marvel, of the three of us, I'm probably more knowledgeable about the Marvel Silver and Bronze Age than you guys are. And vice versa is absolutely true for DC. I think you guys are both more familiar with DC Silver and Bronze Age and can cite more things to me. Right. If that, you know, if I'm not being, uh, 
<laughs> if I'm not being arrogant, thinking that I'm that I have that Marvel edge on you, but uh, I think no, that's the difference. I, mean, I think our histories are just you know you spent more of your childhood reading those. I spent more of my childhood reading these, so that's what we're a little bit more steeped in. No, I don't. I don't find that to be a, a an arrogant statement or an inaccurate statement. I think it's true. I think that when you have actually grown up and and you know more than anything when you've actually. Uh, your familiarity with particular stories or, or whatever comes from the fact that you actually bought it off the stands, as, you know, as a kid or as a young man or whatever. Yeah, you know, I, I have the utmost respect for that because, you know, you can have all the knowledge in the world on a particular subject. I, I've said this before in reference to Star Wars. You know, you can have I will admit that there are people out there in the world that, you know, are are infinitely greater fans in maybe the knowledge and the trivia and things like that of Star Wars. But I also know some of those people that were born in the 90s. I like to still think I have the edge on them because I was actually there, you know, and that's where I think you come in with this is that with a lot of these stories that we've covered over the years, you were actually there. You know, you you bought, you know, like, say, you know, Amazing Spider-Man 100 off the stands, you know, and so you have those those memories. And that just goes into the nature of the show, I think. I, I love when I can remember being able to not only talk about a story, but then be able to talk about it from the aspect of, okay, you know, this particular issue, I bought it off the rack at Mike's Quick Stop back in, you know, 1983 or whatever, and this is why I bought it, and this is the impact it's had on me. I think that adds that personal level as a, as a you know, as opposed to the Wikipedia entry. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, definitely. Uh, although I wasn't quite Spider-Man number 100. Uh, I started with 131. So, oh, okay. So, you know, I, I wasn't quite there, but... And I've talked about this in the past, too. I started with Spider-Man 131, meaning there were only 130 issues out there right. that I didn't have. Right. So between Marvel Tales coming out and back issues that I was picking up at the comic store, because we did have comic stores back then, and, you know, just whatever reprint, you know, the Treasury editions and, and different types of reprint things, by the time, you know, by the time I was 15 or so, I had read every issue of Spider-Man. You know, it, I can't say that's true anymore. You know, now there's whatever, 600 issues, however many issues of just Spider-Man. Plus you have Web of Spider-Man, you have Sensational Spider-Man, Spectacular Spider-Man, Marvel Team-Up, all these different things. You know, back when I started, there was 130 issues of Spider-Man I didn't have. And there were 16 issues of Marvel Team-Up that I didn't have. And two issues of the ma magazine Spectacular Spider-Man that I didn't have. That was all I had to catch up on to have every every Spider-Man issue. Now, sadly, I never did get all of them, but I did manage to read all of them. Right. So, you know, there is, you know, there is that, you know, and, and I read it in my formative comic years. I didn't get to be 30, 40 years old and read it because I do think it's a different experience. When you grow up with it, it's, you know, it, it's, they say uh, the things that you like the most when you're like 12 to 14 years old. Those are the tastes that stay with you forever. So there's something to be said for having been in, a, in on it at that age. And I think that's kind of what you're talking about sometimes when you talk about having seen Star Wars in the movie theater. Not so much that, you know, oh, I'm better than you. You know, you, you just happen to have the age that some other people don't. You know, you, you were at the right age at the right time for that. But 
it probably imprinted itself on you a lot more than it has other people. And when you did it, it was also new. You had that experience of having Star Wars come out and then The Empire Strikes Back come out and then Return of the Jedi come out, you know, all while you're in your teen years. I think that's a huge thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'd heard that before that, you know, that your... I'm not sure how to word it, but essentially your your likes and your dislikes and all that sort of thing are kind of forged in, in that age range. And when I first heard that, I thought, eh, I don't know about that. But over the years, I have become a, a pretty firm subscriber to that particular theory because I know for me it, it does tend to hold true. You know, whenever I... I, I listen to, you know, back episodes or things we've discussed or just plain start digging around on something like Mike's Amazing World. Everything that really seems to be, uh, you know, that generates the fondest memories and, and that sort of thing does seem to be from that general period of when I first got into comics up through being about 18, 19 years old. So, yeah, you know, that that age of uh of yeah generally for me right between like say 13 to 13 to 18 i would say and, and that does seem to be where you know that that sweet spot is for a lot of that stuff so when it comes to comics anyway and not not to to drag this on too long because we should get into the books pretty quickly but uh just to, as, as a reminder of age mm-hmm. uh, a young lady started working at my office in the last couple of weeks and we were talking and she was born three months after I started working at this office. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Tell That's me about it. That's yeah, right. Tell me about it. Most of, the, most of the kids that I'm training these days at work are just slightly younger than my oldest son. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, that's when, when they actually hit the age that they are the same age or even uh, – I'm sorry, I meant to say slightly older, rather. Slightly older than my son. Right, because you're probably they, dealing with people like right out of college. Right, yeah. So um, they have about they, two two or three years on them. Yeah, when they get to the point where they're actually younger than than my oldest. Yeah, that's going to be just, yeah, that's not going to be fun. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so now you're getting to listen to two geezers talk comic books. <sighs> yeah. But, but comic books okay. from... When I was too young to appreciate comic books and Scott wasn't even born. Uh, We have two issues in a row, part of the same story. How about I do my synopsis of my issue, you do your synopsis of your issue, and then we discuss. That works. Okay, so I have Justice League of America, Volume 1, Number 29, from August of 1964. The cover price was 12 cents. The cover is by Mike Sikowski, and it shows Dr. Fate, Black Canary, Dr. Midnight, Hawkman, and Starman. They're standing over some type of globe or crystal ball, which is showing the Flash, Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, and the Green Lantern at a table. Dr. Fate is shooting energy from his fingers into the globe, and it's actually having an effect on the table inside the globe where it's cutting it in half. The story is called Crisis on Earth-3. It's written by Gardner Fox, penciled by Mike Sikowski, inked by Bernard Sachs, lettered by Gaspar Saladino, and edited by Julie Schwartz. The splash page sets forth a roll call for Earth 1, 2, and 3. This is our introduction to Earth 3. On Earth 1, we have the Justice League, consisting of Flash, Wonder Woman, Superman, Batman, and Green Lantern. 
On Earth 2, we have the Justice Society, Hawkman, Black Canary, Dr. Fate, Dr. Midnight, and Starman. And finally, on Earth 3, we have Superman, Owlman, Ultraman, who's kind of fat, uh, Johnny Quick, and Power Ring. Each of these three super teams is undefeated on their respective planets. And as the story opens, the Flash is breaking up a robbery on Earth 1, while at the same time the Flash of Earth 2 is doing the same thing on his planet. But on Earth 3, Johnny Quick is absconding with a world-famous sculpture of some sort. Superman and Power Ring are also up to no good, and they're all lamenting the fact that they're getting careless. Ultra, it's Ultraman. What did I I'm say? Sorry. Superman. <laughs> did I, oh, I'm sorry. It's okay. Where did I? Oh, just, I, just oh, for, I'm what, sorry, what, what just I, for I, clarity. I, I should have said Superwoman, excuse me. Oh, okay. It wasn't Ultraman. It was some, my notes were correct. I just read them wrong. <laughs> Anyway, they're all lamenting the fact that they're getting careless due to the lack of challenges to keep them sharp. We're treated to a silly explanation of how things are different on Earth-3. For example, there, England won freedom from the U.S. in the Revolutionary War. Yeah, Andy Leyland, that's happening. And uh, Abraham Lincoln assassinated President John Wilkes Booth. That would totally change Mike Bailey's family history. So if you remember, he told the story about his, his, some, some ancestor of his who held the horse or something. And oh, yes, that's right. Yeah. God, I'd forgotten Je all about that. Jebediah Bailey would have a totally different <laughs> right. existence. Anyway, all the super beings there are criminals. So as the, uh, cr the, the crime syndicate, which is what they're called there, discuss their dilemma, Ultraman tells the evil team about how he's become aware of Earth-1, and they agree to go there to battle and shake off the rustiness. But before they go, Owlman suggests some plan to them. Moving on to Chapter 2, the crime syndicate comes to Earth-1 and starts a crime spree, which sets the JLE, JLA into action. Flash takes on Ultraman and eventually gets the upper hand, which causes Ultraman to say the magic word Volthoom. Yeah. Batman takes on Johnny Quick with similar results, and the same thing happens as Superman takes on Power Ring, Wonder Woman takes on Superwoman, and Green Lantern takes on Owlman. At this point, we learned that Owlman's plan was for Powering to place a vibratory power in each crime syndicate member to hurl them to Earth-3 if they say Volthoom. So now that they're on Earth-3, for reasons that I never really explained, the home field advantage allows the syndicate members to defeat the League members fairly easily. But they decide that they want to fight on a neutral site and decide to go to Earth-2 to do so. Power Ring sends the League back to their headquarters, but under the magic power of his ring, fastens their hands to their council table. Unknown to them, the JSA is aware of them and seeks out the JLA. They see that they are under some type of spell, and Dr. Fate uses his power to free them, much in the way that it's shown on the cover of the issue. The JLA warns them about the whole Volthoom thing, and at that, the story is to be continued by Mr. Gardner. All right, so moving on to JLA number 30. Can you hear the dog barking in the background, by the way? I didn't. I wasn't listening for it, but I okay. didn't. All right. So if, it's, if it is being heard, it's not too loud. All right, these are the plagues of recording earlier in the evening, unfortunately. Uh, that sort of thing makes me nuts. All right, I'm sorry. JLA number 30, Justice League of America, volume one, number 30. 
Uh, this is the September 1984 cover dated issue on sale July 23rd, 1964. Cover again by Mike Sikowski with inks by Murphy Anderson, who I really wish had done the interior inks on this as well, as I'm a big fan of, uh, of Murphy Anderson. The cover on this one is pretty cool. I actually kind of like this one with certain reservations. Um, I'll come right out of the gate and say I'm not a Mike Sikowski fan, but we'll get more into that later. Um, but this cover is actually not... It, it's pretty cool. Uh, for one thing, uh, I love the cover copy. It says featuring 15 superstars. Now, they are counting the five members of the crime syndicate uh, amongst those 15, but it says fe uh, featuring 15 superstars in the most stupendous battle royale of all time. Actually, they spell they, they spelled it royal. So, battle royal of all time? I don't think so. <laughs> the most dangerous earth of all is the name of the story. Uh, original cover price on this was 12 pennies. So, the most dangerous earth of all was written by Gardner F. Fox with pencils by Mike Sikowski and inks by Bernard Sachs. All the other credits, I'm assuming, are probably the same as the ones for, uh, for Paul's issue. So, uh, forewarned and thus, uh, thus forearmed by their pals in the Justice League of America, Hawkman, Black Canary, Dr. Midnight, Dr. Fate, and Starman of the world known as Earth-2 brace for an attack by the crime syndicate of Earth-3. And they don't have to wait long as the villains pop out of uh, globes, TV screens, and a model train set on page 3. Uh, you can check for yourself if you think I'm making any of that up, folks. Uh, our man's battle with Johnny Quick is first up, and of all the fights that we get, is the only one that makes even the slightest lick of sense at all, but just barely does it really make sense. Um, Dr. Fate uh, defeats um, Power Power Ring? Is that yeah. right? My yeah, power. notes say PW. It should say PR. <laughs> That's what I get for abbreviations. Uh, let's see. Dr. Midnight owns Owlman, Black Canary, Hogtie's Superwoman with her own lasso. No, seriously. And Starman knocks Ultraman sen senseless by nuking him. Again, not kidding on that. The JSAers have defeated the crime syndicate without touching them, nor allowing any of them to speak their magic word and thus be whisked back to Earth 3. But the trick is on them. The crime syndicators, is that even a thing, syndicators? Now nah, we're going to run it. It is that. now. Okay. <laughs> Expected to be defeated and so rigged it that the triumphant heroes uh, and the beaten baddies would still be transported to Earth 3 after their little tussle. The JSA members are imprisoned, and now it is time for the main event. Power Ring rouses the JLA from their trance and sends them to Earth 2, where they and the crime syndicate, theoretically, stand on even footing for their final battle royale. After an initial opening round where the members of the crime syndicate attack whomever JLAers are in front of them and the JLAers cover each other's backs, we finally see each individual hero tackle his or her own evil counterpart, which is what I always want from these kind of stories. Superman defeats Ultraman by overloading him with kryptonite radiation, however the hell that works. Similarly, Green Lantern and The Flash both take their counterpart, uh, counterparts uh, out in pretty much the same fashion, a power overload that totally works because Silver Age. <laughs> and Wonder Woman lays out Superwoman 
with a solid right cross, which is all I ever really wanted to see any of them do to their evil twins in the first place. And Batman triumphs over Owlman in such a way that I'm actually obligated not to tell you. Because, folks, there is no warning label on this episode on the possible risks of brain damage due to the content, so I really shouldn't tell you. Just believe me when I do tell you that the descriptor retarded is almost too kind a word for it, okay? Just just trust me on this one. The story wraps up with the JLA diffusing a booby trap that we would have uh, essentially destroyed both Earths 1 and 2. And they make it kind of an offhand comment kind of thing. This is the entire plot of a later appearance by one of the members of the crime syndicate. We'll talk more about that later. Uh, freeing the JSA from the prison and setting the crime syndicate up in their new digs, a Green Lantern-generated power bubble that will be their home for the next 14 years until some of them briefly escape in Secret Society of Supervillains number 13 in 1978. And that's pretty much uh, issue 30. So... <laughs> Ready to dig into this uh, sure, fun I fest am. here? There's, there's a lot to dig into. Oh, and I, yes. think, I think most of what we're going to talk about is, as you said, kind of the Silver Age approach to it. Yeah. So before we get to that, why don't we just talk a little bit about the artwork? Because I, I think that's we will dispense of that topic a little quicker. Okay. And what I looked at with this, or what, what, what struck me, other than the cover of the of issue 29, which I happen to be, which I happen to like a lot, uh most of the artwork in here, I'm just noticing everybody looks very, very stiff. And that's the problem I have with it. You know, we t we've talked about how Gene Colan makes everybody look smooth, like they're in motion. Right, right. There's none of that here. These look... Um, so what I'm looking at, I don't know if you're looking at the same thing. I'm looking at the first page, the, um, the Indicia page of number 29, uh -huh. where it shows you you've got one row of the JS JLA... Another row, that's the JSA, and then the last row is the Crime Syndicate. These all look like color forms. Yeah. They're, they're static images that just, they really don't do anything for these characters. And, you know, my biggest note art-wise between these two issues was fat, 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 fat. You Particularly Ultraman. Yeah, I mean, you look down the list of these characters, and okay, Flash, little chunky for a runner, but not bad. Wonder Woman, eh, she's okay. Superman, Batman, Green Lantern, eh, maybe not Hawkman. Actually, the JSA, who's the older team and should maybe be a little bit punchy, doesn't look too bad. But again, you get down to the males of the crime syndicate, and again, fat, 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 fat. They just... Well, power so... powering is the only one that doesn't look fat on that. Page. Yeah, he yeah he doesn't look too bad. Owlman looks very not threatening. Yeah, he looks like you'd laugh at him if he came at you. Well, you know the Owlman in this it was really bizarre because he was more. Um, I, I, it's hard to describe. He was almost uh, like they they, they they kind of portray him as being more brains than physical. Yeah, he is, but he, he also had this weird, like, mental whammy power where he could put people under his thrall or something. Yeah. So, yeah, he really was not 
an evil Batman so much as he was like an evil like mesmerizer or something. I don't evil know. Professor was, X. Yeah, kind of. Still in a uh, wheelchair. Yeah, it was it was really bizarre. I mean, now that is one of the things I always liked about the crime syndicate was that they weren't exactly. Do you remember there was a really great episode of um, of the Super Friends where Superman got bounced to an alternate reality where the Super Friends were actually I think they were called the Super Enemies, I think. And everybody was basically they were just it, it was like the mirror mirror episode of star trek everybody looked just a little bit different but essentially they were just the super friends as evil twins Mm -hmm. and while i've often heard the crime syndicate described that way they're not really because they're all a little different than just simply the evil justice league because for one thing um Owlman and Ultraman are not Bruce Wayne and Clark Kent of this world. As a matter of fact, I don't think we ever get Ultraman's real name, but I'm pretty sure he's not Clark Kent. Yeah, I always Owlman, got the feeling he didn't have. Yeah, may, might a, not even a have identity of any yeah. sort. Yeah, and they're all a little bit different. What's really funny is that um, Superwoman was described as being the lowest lane of her world as opposed to wonder woman and i actually fact checked this um again today and on the actual dc wikipedia site she is still listed as you know in pre-crisis being lois lane but i got to thinking about that and i think we've actually cited this before either on a past episode of either back to the bins or tales of the jsa i forget which that you know, we threw it out there as kind of a little, hey, did you know she's actually Wonder Woman of her world? But that can't be because Lois Lane um, was the mother of Alexander Luthor in Crisis on Infinite Earth. So there can't be two Lois Lanes of the same Earth, right? So I'm not sure how that all... Yeah, how that no, all I, I think there's up. a lot of retconning involved there. Yeah, something's something's a little bit screwy there somewhere. But uh, I'm sorry, you wanted to talk about art, and I just ran in all kinds of weird that's, directions. No, that's all right. That's that's the way this show is. You know that. <laughs> that's what we do. But yeah, I mean, just just overall, I I feel like this is really that that silver agey kind of house style art. There's nothing about it that really seems innovative to me. Uh, I think the the character models on the crime syndicate are really kind of lazy, actually. Yeah. So I'm I'm not impressed with the artwork here, and we'll talk about ratings later on it. But uh, you know, I do like the fact that they did try to make them look different, that they're not just the same exact thing. Yeah. But I think that they could have been a little bit more creative and and come up with things that that were looking a little bit more threatening or a little bit more sleek. You know, however you want to say it. But it, it's very, you know, I hate to, I feel like I'm overusing this word lately, but I would call it pedestrian. It is very pedestrian. And uh, this type of storytelling, particularly art-wise, you know, art's the biggest thing that, that, that really keeps me from enjoying this. But also the storytelling both. Um, this, this, these are the reasons that I'm not terribly well-versed on this era of the Justice League because, you know, I, I've said this before, but I'm primarily an art-first kind of guy. And this art is incredibly pedestrian. 
I mean, this story should thrill. This story should excite. I mean, you have the Justice League facing their evil counterparts. And while there's not a hell of a lot of fisticuffs, there are some. And just the idea of, you know, Superman fighting an evil Superman and Wonder Woman fighting somebody on her power, you know, and all these different matchups that we get in this. And the fact that there's not one, not one panel that I look at in either of these issues and think, oh, that's cool. That looks neat. Or, you know, wow, look at that. None. It's all so bland. And uh, and yeah, it just kills it for me. Okay. This, I'm sorry. Go ahead and finish. I, I was just my, my closing thought on that was. I think that this is a, a wonderful illustration. You know, this this dude, we should have invited him because this dude's name is going to come up again and again in the course of this discussion. But Michael Bailey, you know, Michael Bailey made uh, a brilliant observation one time that there are some stories that you've heard about as part of being a, a comic book fan, you know, as, as especially, a, you know, a new comic book fan who's diving into a, a given universe. And you start hearing about, old stories like say um i think for me a great example would be the kree scroll war you know and you start hearing about these these um what's the word um ah, shit you know like seminal uh, like, seminal yes thank you uh, these seminal moments in a given universe and how important they were what what a big deal they were how they changed the game or they added some important dimension or it's something that's constantly being referred back to whatever the case may be and you can read about it in either like in a flashback in an issue or maybe like in a text piece or in something like say marvel saga or who's who or something like that and it sounds like wow that sounds awesome but then you actually read it and this has happened to us here on this show. I know that this has happened. Um, best example I can think of is when Chris Honeywell brought the story of the Doom Patrol, that issue where the Doom Patrol essentially gave their lives to save a small town. I'd heard that story a million times. But then to actually read the issue and you find out, wow, this kind of sucks, <laughs> you know? So there, it's that difference between the story you've heard and the actual experience of reading the actual story. This here, I'll be honest, I'm not sure I've ever actually read these two issues as we read them for this show. You know, sitting down, reading them back to back and, and really taking a hard look. I'm not sure I've ever done that before. And while I will profess my love for the crime syndicate and, you know, this is their first appearance and this kind of establishes them in universe. Wow, it's really not very good at all. I was kind of I was kind of bored with it, to be honest with you. Yeah, it. it this is one that that jumps out at me as being written for an eight year old. Oh yeah. Now yeah. In in number twenty nine, one of the examples to me of the poor art or, or missed opportunities in the art is the montage page, which is page number twenty one at the bottom of it, of of the uh, crime syndicate defeating the Justice League. Yeah. And first yeah. of all, what's Ultraman doing to the Flash? Yeah, he's uh, smacking him on the ass. What's that all about? Yeah. I mean, it, it's just, there's nothing in particular that I look at this page and say, oh, that's terrible. Except, you know, the little S&M moment between Ultraman and the Flesh. Well, look at but, Power Rangers. It, it Ring feels now. like such a missed opportunity. It feels yeah. like this, this could have been, this could have been like a poster type page that you'd say, oh, I would love to put this on my wall. Mm -hmm. And yet it's just, 
again, for lack of a better word, it's pedestrian. There's nothing about it that really stands out as being <laughs> very special. And Chewie agrees with you. But no, I agree. I, you know, look at um, the, the two examples here that really illustrate your point, I think, is for one, look at Power Ring. He almost looks like an afterthought. Like he, he yeah. was like somebody was like, "Oh, we forgot somebody," and they and it just his, his proportions are wrong. It's just really bizarre looking. And then Green Lantern. Now Green Lantern, there's nothing wrong with him art wise per se, but he's being zapped by a yellow beam from Owl Man, and he's literally cringing like a like a little kid. He's like, "Oh, stop it!" <laughs> it just looks ridiculous. What about, what about Johnny Quick, who apparently decapitated Batman and is just <laughs> he's head spinning around. his head? Because <laughs> apparently he doesn't have the rest of his body; it's just a head. <laughs> That's gotta hurt. Now I didn't, you know, I I don't think I've ever noticed before. But Wonder Woman wears high heels. Aren't those? She's those... got them in that. Oh, she, you're right. Yeah, you're, she does have a heel there, doesn't she? I didn't notice that before. I didn't realize she fought crime in pumps. <laughs> Sandal pumps. Yeah, yeah, that's that is really weird. I mean, uh, it's. I, I think we're, we're pretty much in total agreement on this artwork here. Now, story-wise, again, you know, I started to say it seems like it's written for an eight-year-old. It's it's very, very simplistic. There's so much stuff that doesn't make sense. First of all, what the hell is Volthoom? Does that have any... It does, actually. I looked that up, and it w- I, I, I've since forgotten what it was, but I actually did look that up. It did have some sort of meaning for something let me see i'm gonna have to look it back up again because it did actually it was actually something very quickly power ring was given his magical power ring and power battery by a monk named volthoom yeah yeah that's wonderful yeah he's actually you know his if his ring is so powerful that it could he can tell it okay if they say they won then you make it they lost and that well that's the thing too they never actually did say that I noticed that, too, because after the battle is over and everybody gets whisked to uh, Earth-3, there's that moment where where Superwoman is all gloaty about it. Or no, I'm sorry, it's, uh, it's Owlman, rather, that says it. He says, uh, this time I planned matters so that even if the Justice, Le- uh, Justice Society members didn't come in contact with us and give us a chance to save Volthoom, they, they'd automatically defeat themselves by saying that they had won. So I went back and looked at every single one of the victories of the heroes, and not a damn one of them said anything like, hey, I won. It's Well, no, no, no. Hawkman says, actually literally says, I've won. Did he say it? Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at them now. Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, I take it back. He did. Okay, he did. All right, so that was the okay. first one. Dr. Fate says, ensuring my triumph. It's stretching it a little. Mm. Uh, Dr. Midnight says, I beat him. Okay, all right, I take it back. I guess they sort of did then. Uh, I'm trying to see each one of them now. Black Canary says, I'm the winner of our bout. So they do kind of say it. Eh, I still think it's a stretch. Oh, it is a stretch, because, you know, what exactly sets it off? Right. Uh, but, But how does that work? I don't care, you know. I don't care whether they said it or not. If they, they they use the exact words, if it was the Justice Society has to say Volthoom, and they did. So how does this work? How do, so my ring is going to say if you say you won, you lost. Really? <laughs> what what what's the logic behind that? Where where does that come from? Right. Well, what is the mysterious little voice that after every one of them 
comments. Is that supposed to be the I ring? It's supposed to be Owlman somehow, but oh, I don't know. God. Or, or yeah. you know, I mean, why doesn't Power Ring just set it up that you know, if they call, if if they fight us, they lose. <laughs> if you, if it's that powerful, then he could just make it lose. Right. You know, I mean, that's just dumb. But I guess, like I said, if you're eight years old, maybe you look at it and you think that somehow that's cool. Or if you're eight years old in 1964. See, I'm wondering what I would have thought about this if I had read this as a, as a kid. I probably would. I'd, I'd probably love it. I'd probably have eaten this up with a spoon, you know? Yeah. It, so I, it's, I, that's it's, it's a shame that I hadn't because I probably would hold it in much higher regard. But between the, the dopey nature of the story and the terrible artwork, uh, I just – I don't. I – the only real thing I get from this at all is that it's interesting from a historical perspective to see where these characters started, because while I don't think much of this, these are some of my favorite characters or some of my favorite bad guys because of stories that we would get later where, where I met them essentially. Yeah. Well, I met them in the secret society of supervillains mm-hmm. and which I picked up new off the stand when it came Okay. Uh, and, and I found them to be fascinating back then. And I don't think I ever read this before either. And and I kind of picked these two issues based on the thought that, you know, there would be a historical significance to them and that we'd get a kick. I, I was thinking, you know, we'll see. I, I knew we'd see some Silver Age silliness in here. Right. But, you know, people who listen regularly know I enjoy Silver Age silliness. But there still needs to be some sense of logic or or right you know just 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 some inner flow to it that makes sense this is just you know they, they each are superior on their own planet why what's the home field right. advantage what what is it that that's making right. that happen you know give me something here well you know i'm currently reading a lot of silver age and i'm not a don't get me wrong i'm not a silver age hater but here's the thing is that there's a difference between you know silver age silliness and just oh my god you know, and that this falls much more in the latter. This mu- falls much more in, you know, a, a good, uh, you know, a good illustration of that is, you know, you can read something that's silver agey. That's just it's fun. It's got a lot of action. The art's pretty good and that sort of thing. But it has its silver agey elements that you just kind of have to, you know, smile at or just kind of ignore whatever the case may be to get you through this, you know, to, to overlook that part and just get you through the story and and comics in general kind of have that, you know, there's certain things where you just kind of have to turn a blind eye or suspend your disbelief or whatever, sometimes more so with something, you know, from the silver age, but generally, you know, if it has a good story in there somewhere, you can overlook those things. And that's the problem with this is that it goes far beyond just a little bit of silver age silliness into silver age stupidity. There's just a lot of it. That's just dumb. Dumb to the point of like, kind of insulting. You know what I mean? In, in its in its stupidity. And I don't mean to be overly harsh, but I mean that really is what it comes down to. Is that you know, Silver Age silly I can take. Silver Age stupid not so much. And there is an awful lot of it in this. Um, I unfortunately I don't see a lot of um, I, you know I don't see a lot of saving graces to it. Really the. The thing I take away from this is that it did establish these characters that would come back and, and be used to much greater use much later. It's just it's a shame it took so long. And really, there's not much later use of them um, except for you know a handful of stories. You know, you mentioned uh, Secret Society of Supervillains. So, you know, that was in 1978. 
and we don't even get all of them. We got Johnny Quick, Power Ring, and Superwoman do break out, and uh, and they're part of those two issues, uh, Secret Society of Supervillains 13 and 14. I have those. I'm pretty sure I've read them, but it's been a long time, and I don't remember exactly what happens in those stories. Do you remember? Not too much. At that point, I know uh, that series, you know, they needed a protagonist to fight, or an antagonist, I guess, uh, to fight the villains. So mm-hmm. Captain Comet was the guy they had latched on to. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty confident that, you know, if, I don't know if you watched wrestling when you were a kid. No. But they'd have to, uh, you know, when they were trying to build up a bad guy to make him a threat for, you know, whoever the champion was, they'd have them fight, you know, like the uh, the Mort of the Month, you know, the, the guy who was... Right. <laughs> he didn't stand a chance. And I kind of remember it being that, that that's who Captain Comet was in that series. You know, he, he was fighting all these guys and he'd give them a little battle, but he'd always lose. Uh, so like, I, I only have a vague memory of the story. I remember, I think if my memory is right, that it may have been Steve Englehart that wrote it. I don't remember. Yeah. But that would, you, I think that was when some of the Marvel bronze age guys started to go back and forth a little bit between the companies right? and it started yeah. bringing DC a little bit more into the bronze age. Um, but that's the thing is the thing is what you were talking about. And this isn't to be a DC hater. Cause I, I do love a lot of DC silver age stuff. But DC let themselves get entrenched in the Silver Age, and it took them forever to get out of it. Right. Whereas Marvel, I think, even when Marvel came into the Silver Age, it was slightly more sophisticated. I mean, Stanley had a lot of Silver Agey things that he did, but he started adding, you know, when he started adding those weaknesses to the heroes, or the, you know, the Fatal Flaw, or whatever you want to call it, uh, and and creating, you know, more realistic romance issues between the hero and and you know the the woman who uh, who they be attracted to. You know they they were a little less silly than you know the Clark Kent Lois Lane relationship. You know where she's you know her whole uh, reason to be is to try and prove that he's Superman. Right. Uh, you know they they got a little silly with some of the things there. And and again I love some good silliness like you you know you talked about. But I think Marvel got more sophisticated more quickly, mm-hmm. and DC kind of stayed with the attitude of hey this is for young kids. Right, and sometimes I think that attitude made them be a little bit lazy in their stories. I think they thought, you know, I don't have to give, I don't have to think this out all that much because the people who are going to read it are never going to question it. You know, none of this was intended for you know guys our age to be sitting here breaking it down. Right, uh, exactly, yeah. But you know, that's where we are now. You know, we're 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 exploring the history of these books and and where they were and what they did. So. Yeah, you know, overall, these two books, they're, they're disappointing because there is a historical nature to them. And, you know, back then they did the once annual, you know, Justice League, Justice, Justice Society crossover. I think this is the second time they did it. And I think, I think you you're know, right. That was a special event. That should have been something that really, you know, that they were bringing their A game to. And they didn't always do that. And and that holds true later on, too, because I know you and Mike covered a lot of those on your uh, on Tales of the Justice Society. Right. And and some of them, you know, it's like you, you could roll your eyes and say, oh, you know, that's, that's not what I remembered it being. Uh, but, you know, it's, well, it's just a little bit of a disappointment because I just I just had hopes of, for more. During the time that, that Mike and I were doing Tales of the, the JSA, we had an awful lot of requests from listeners to go back and cover some of the older stories, especially some of the older JSA, JLA team ups. 
And this right here is a good illustration of why we never did that. Because invariably, uh, this is what you what you would get. Because we did go back, and not on the show, but you know, just on our own time. You know, Mike and I sometimes together, sometimes separately. We would go back and examine some of the stories that were most requested of us in the feedback on the show. And this is one that came up time and time and time again, especially after we had covered stories uh, with the crime syndicate or or members of the crime syndicate. There was a lot of requests. Hey, can you go back and you know what is this story they're referring to? You know, some people wanted to just have it covered because they'd never read this either or they read it, they cherished it from their childhood or whatever, and they wanted us to, to you know, give our take on that story. I, I'm presuming, hoping we would love it, too. And this is the biggest reason why we never did, because we just weren't. And we started that show when we started it, meaning, you know, the, the comic that we started it with for a very specific reason, because that's where we felt like, OK, this is where this, you know, going forward, this is good stuff. You started and, with All-Star Comics, right? We did. We started with All Star Comics, uh, the revival issue, which the number's escaping me at the moment. Fifty seven. Um, I, I, I think that's right. And we started it there because while there are a good number of, uh, you know, JSA in the Silver Age stories prior to that, you know, everything from, uh, you know, Flash of Two Worlds up to the uh, the JSA revival. Um, in All-Star, even though there's a good number of stories in between there, we just found that overall the quality just wasn't what we wanted for stories that we would be covering, you know, month in and month out. And so that's why we skipped that, you know, that era and, you know, stories like this in particular. And again, that's, you know, I'm not slagging anybody that that loves this story or, or loves that era of of JSA material, I just, we just didn't, you know, we, we just felt like it was best to cover what we loved and, and go from that as opposed to slog through something that we just weren't feeling, especially right at the beginning of a show. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. When you're just getting off the ground, you don't want to start it with, okay, we promise this gets better. You know, you're going to lose people right out of the gate. You know, you got to start with something strong. So I'm glad to have covered it now, you know, all these years later and everything. But uh, yeah, I, I think I think this just really hits home with me that we made a good decision not to to do this stuff, uh, especially in the early days of, of of tales. There's a big difference between covering it and covering it issue by issue by issue. Right. You know, yeah. it, it, we don't have that that same slog that you'd have to go through if you had to you know do them consecutively right we, we, we're covering this and you know next week we're going to be going on to something totally different from this right so there's, there's something to be said for that i think something i did want to point out though um because you know as i've said a couple of times now you know I, I i do have a real fondness for these characters meaning the crime syndicate so, you know, listeners, if you're not already aware of this, um, two episodes I'm going to refer you to where these characters are used to what I feel is great effect are go back to um, back to the bins number 72, where Mike Bailey and I covered DC Comics Presents annual number one. And that was my introduction to the character of Ultraman. 
and Ultraman is one of the one of the villains. There's multiple villains in that issue, but he's one of the villains in there. And that was my first introduction to him. And one of the big reasons I've always been a big Ultraman fan is because of that issue. For one thing, it's illustrated by Rich Buckler. It's gorgeous, um, but it's just a really, really good story. And what's funny in that is the whole plot in that issue involves the destruction of Earth 1 and 2. That's the plot of the whole thing. Whereas that element's a part of this story and just kind of done offhand. Oh, by the way, uh, the thing's booby-trapped, and if you trip it, then uh, Earth 1 and 2 will be destroyed. And they defeat it in like three panels. You know, whereas that's the entire annual of this other story, you know, years later. Um, something else I want to point you guys to is um, Tales of the Justice Society of America number 44 was the beginning of our coverage of the story arc called Crisis on Earth Prime. Um, that started with Justice League of America number 207. Now, this was in the 80s. I want to say 1982, I think. So almost 20 years later, the crime syndicate finally, as a whole, all of them, finally get free and are used to much greater effect than they were used in this story here. So... Uh, like I say, it's only Ultraman in the DC Comics Presents annual, but starting with Justice League of America 207 and the, the issues it crosses over with, that's everybody. Um, and I'm, so, I'm going to interrupt you and just throw out a little teaser to everybody that we may be revisiting that DC annual, not necessarily on Back to the Bins, but maybe. Mm -hmm. And just leave it at that for now. I'd be down for that. But uh, I always like that uh, that other story, although um, it's the art uh, is very inconsistent because it's it it goes between three different books. It goes between Justice League of America, um, the All Star Squadron, and what was the other book? Maybe it is just those two books. I was thinking it was three different books that it goes between. Maybe it was JSA. Well, JSA, the closest thing they had was All-Star Squadron at that time. Yeah, I guess I think I guess it is just those two books. I was thinking it was three, but yeah, the, the arts tends to be a little wonky back and forth. But uh, that, so far as my research uh, on this subject today, that issue, that Justice League of America 207, that's the first time we see Owlman again. Because, you know, like in the Secret Society issues, um, you got Johnny Quick, Power Ring, and Superwoman in the DC Presents Annual. You got Ultraman. But poor Owlman, who is supposed to be the super genius, <laughs> he never gets out again until the whole team gets out uh, in that crossover. So that's, that's funny. Yeah. You know, the, the smart one's the one that, that never gets to escape in the, the almost 20 years that they were there. Which always to me begged the question of how does limbo jail work? <laughs> Your guess is as good as mine on that one. I mean, cause we see them in the next to last panel in number 30, you know, they're, they're in their power ring bubble and Superman's kind of telling about, you know, how they set up all these warning signs in different languages. And it's funny because the war, you can actually read the one and it says warning. Says anyone attempting to set free their crime syndicate will destroy both themselves and the prisoners. They will be all right if left alone, and so will you. And I'm like, that's very passive aggressive. <laughs> but you see them, and there's you know, you've got Johnny Quick and Ultraman are sitting just sitting on the ground, and they look just you know, it's just so bored and and you know, just sad. And then you've got <laughs> <laughs> Superwoman and Owlman 
are leaning against the wall like a couple of juvenile delinquents. And then you've got poor Power Ring is just standing there looking all forlorn as he just kind of stares off into space. Now, I know that comic book time is not the same as real time, but still, you know, I think uh, to my memory, it was kind of wink, wink acknowledged that they do spend a lot of time in this bubble between, you know, what year it really is here in 1964 and when they will eventually be freed in the 80s. Now, while it's not the same stretch of time, it was still acknowledged that they were there a long time. So what I want to know is what is the nature of limbo? Is it like the Phantom Zone? I mean, are they they don't need to eat. They don't need to go to the bathroom. They don't need to breathe. I mean, how does this work exactly? And more importantly, how did anybody in the Justice League or the Justice Society know this? Had they done this before? Had they experimented? Did they, you know, did they send a a dog or a monkey into limbo to make sure, you know, they check back in six weeks and it's still alive. You know, I mean, how, how do they know that they are not leaving these people here to die in this power ring bubble? How the hell does that work? I, I want answers, you know? Sorry, I can't help you. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. That's just crazy. So I, I'm more interested in stuff like that in, in stories like this than I am of the actual, fisticuffs i want to know how the physics of the whole thing works you know yeah well, you, you know what you're gonna to have to touch base with blaine dowler because he's our <laughs> resident physics expert right but yeah, i mean I, I i i got no idea i got nothing for you i'm sorry you know when i i've been examining the history of the phantom zone on my on again off again superman show which i swear i have a new episode coming out pretty soon but when it comes to limbo, I just I don't get it. It's it's too hard to it's too hard to trace, you know, the because every you know, they use this term limbo for all kinds of different dimensions that are not necessarily the same dimension. If you know what I'm talking, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, it's kind of a generic. Uh... Yeah, a generic term for anything that's not a defined dimension, so to speak. So, yeah, I don't know that they're very much using this as if it was the Phantom Zone, which let me think 64. Yeah, the Phantom Zone was around, but I don't believe that that's what this is supposed to be. Superman just calls it a, a, a place between uh, between dimensions. Essentially, it's it's like a it's like a void between dimensions, but. I don't know. I just I want to how did how did they know that they are not condemning these people to a gruesome death? Well, it's like <laughs> in the Adventures of Superman when he left the two people up in the log cabin. You know, I'll bring you food. Don't worry, you'll be fine. And they were dead within five minutes. <laughs> so oh that, well. <laughs> that does beg the question. Then maybe maybe for the next you know however many comic book years. Somebody in the JLA or JSA, or maybe they shared the duties between them. Somebody was bringing them, you know, three squares a day and slipping it through a slot in the side of the bubble or something. You know, see, maybe, I see it more. I see it more as a uh, leaving con on SETI Alpha Five. <laughs> yeah, just, just we left them there and whatever. <laughs> see you in twenty years. This is the power ring bubble. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't know. We're kind of up against it on time, so we should probably yeah. this one now. Or I guess 
separate ratings for the covers and story and art separate if you think they're distinctive between the two or one rating if you think they're the same well yeah that's this is gonna be a tough one to grade all right so uh no i'm sorry did you want to go first or do you want me to go first yeah, you'll call what would you rather um i'll go ahead and knock mine out real quick um i'm gonna rate the covers separately i don't care much for the cover on 29 it is iconic that's the funny thing it is an iconic cover but i don't think much of it 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 just for one thing um three of the jsa's have creepy like dead-eyed doll face or something they just creep me the hell out they look really weird it's one of the things i like about it <laughs> the the only part of the art i really do like is i do like how superman looks superman looks really cool i love the giant yellow s on his cape that's really cool batman looks terrible um so yeah i'm i'm just not enamored of of the cover on this i'm gonna give the cover a you know, I think I'm going to lump the cover. I, I know the interior art is inked by a completely different inker, and I hate to be this harsh when it comes to something by uh, you know that Murphy Anderson worked on. But both cover and interior art on 29, I'm going to give a D. I really don't like it. I think it's barely passable. I'd give it an F, except I reserve F for like, it, it actually just like makes me nauseous. This doesn't, I mean, it gets the job done, but in the most boring pedestrian way possible. So a D. Um, and I'm going to rate the story overall between both issues here in just a moment. Number 30's cover, um, I like. I, I like it a hell of a lot more than 29. It's slightly less boring. Um, there is a little bit more going on. As a matter of fact, seeing Batman give Owlman that right cross, that's more action than we got anywhere in these uh, these two issues, with the exception of, uh, of Wonder Woman clocking Superwoman in that one panel. But even that wasn't ex as exciting as this. So from a cover design aspect, it's pretty good. And I do like the inks. I can definitely see the Murphy Anderson influence in the cover of 30. So... Cover of 30, I'm going to say a, um, I'll say a C minus on that. Um, interior art is still a straight up D. I really don't like it at all. Uh, especially, um, especially uh, Ultraman. Just, I, I, I love this guy. I love his outfit. I love his look. He just looks terrible here. Um, so D on the interior art there. And then overall story between the two. Uh, I think I'm going to give a, a C minus as well. It's, it's not failing. It had potential. It's just, it's, it's a story full of squandered potential and it talks down too much. It, it's, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. it, it's it, yeah. Like you said, it, it's, it's obviously written for not the smartest kids in the class, unfortunately. It, it could have been much smarter than this. <laughs> if that so, was the case, I should like it. Right. So, so between the two issues, uh, overall grade, I'm going to go... I, I think C-minus is more than generous with this because it should be much better than what it is um, because of its historical importance. But I can't let the historical importance of it blind me to the fact that it's not good comics. Sorry. Well, I think that's fair. Uh, we do differ on the covers. I actually like the cover of number 29. 
and the, the the I didn't really notice the the dead baby doll eyes. Dead eyes. <laughs> but now that you mentioned that, I, I I I actually enjoy that. I think it's <laughs> you enjoy that. That's gonna I, I keep find me it awake tonight. Uh, I, I'm just I'm looking at it, and compared to the interior art, I think everybody's drawn so much closer to, uh, you know, a more advanced model than than what it is inside. And inside the the art looks so pedestrian; it it looks mm-hmm. so much better to me on the outside. And and there is a, a somewhat iconic nature to it. I mean, it's not the best. I you know I openly admit, but but I th- I think it's it's compelling it's something i would definitely have wanted to pick up off the newsstands if i saw this so i'm, I'm going to give it a b on the cover of number 29 the cover of number 30 i don't like quite as much not because the layout is bad. i like the layout of the cover uh what i don't like is particularly batman and johnny quick just look very very awkward as they're posed they don't look like they're fluid at all in their motions and, and I just don't like that about it. Mm-hmm. Um, other than that, I could do without the the orange background. Yeah. So it's a solid cover, but it's got a couple of weaknesses. So I'm going to give that a B as well. I, if if I were going to split hairs, I like 29 a little bit more than 30, but I, I like them both. Uh, so, so I'm going to give you a B on the covers to each. Uh, the interior art, however, I'm compelled to agree with you that it's a D. Uh, I, I don't really see any, you know, I, I see so many mischances here. I see so many areas where it could be dynamic and it's just not. I see so many people, like you said, who they just look fat uh, yeah. and there's no reason for it. And and again, I see a lot of motion that just doesn't look fluid at all. So I'm going to say a D on the interior art. I think it could have been so much better. The story, it's like, I, I would think if I were the writer of this story, if, if I were sitting down to write this in 1964... Even then, the historical the historical significance of bringing the Justice Society in once a year and having those those crossovers, I think I would have been impressed with that even then. So I would have known that I was writing something that should have had you know a little bit more import to it. So the fact that he got lazy with a lot of his things in the story and and you know just came up with story with with things that you you you, you scratch your head and you think it's stupid. Uh, it's it's hard to forgive that because again he should have known that he was writing something special here or that he you know that that he had the opportunity to write something special, so I'm gonna give the I'm gonna give the uh, story a D as well. But overall, I'm gonna give the two issues a C minus based on the fact that I think the covers are better than the interiors. So I'm I'm right there with you on C minus overall. Cool. This was this was fun. I enjoyed this. I, I wish that I enjoyed the story more, but sometimes it's fun when the story sucks. So. Yeah, sometimes the fact that the story f- sucks is what is fun. Right, exactly. <laughs> we always have more to say when the story sucks. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. 
Each and every month, the Two True Freaks Network produces dozens of new and exciting episodes which regularly reach tens of thousands of loyal listeners worldwide. Sponsorship and or advertising opportunities are available. Inquiries may be made via email to twotruefreaks at gmail.com. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. You make me sound like a complete idiot. (laughs) Well, wait a minute.